funny how? I mean, funny like I'm a clown, I amuse you. Talking about uh, Michael Bay. Yeah, talking about Michael Bay, a director who literally has nothing to do with today's episode. That was a good guess. Thanks, <laughs> guys. Jonathan here with Jacob. This is the silver screen video. You guys know. You clicked on it. You know what we're talking about already. But we're still gonna act like it's a surprise and not talk about it for another couple of minutes. Uh, <laughs> how, how you doing, Jake? Minutes. <laughs> oh, I don't know if I can vamp that long. Uh... <laughs> How you doing? How's it going in the Big Apple? Good. It's uh, fucking cold here. Uh, what's the temperature? Uh, 27 degrees. I just pulled that out of absolute nowhere, but it's cold. Goddamn, that is cold, but I doubt it's that cold. Um, no, it really is. Nah, I doubt it. Anyway. Oh, well, okay, um, fuck you. <laughs> guys, uh... I'm sure uh, Jacob thought I was joking when I said I was going to do this, but Jacob is a master's degree holding Columbia University graduate. You think you're a smart motherfucker now? You think you're better than me? I, I unequivocally do, yes. Hold on. Did you think that before the degree or after degree? Both. <laughs> well, that's disheartening. Um, <laughs> yeah, seriously. I got, I got some more bad news. The listeners do, too. Oh, God. Um, (laughs) so uh so i mean does this give the podcast more credibility we've had some we've had academy award nominated directors we've had you know the greatest living cinematic mind and now you have a master's degree from a prestigious university have we hit Uh, the ceiling i don't think so and if we have that's really depressing (laughs) (laughs) well if the ceiling is a is a is a master's degree uh, that I'll be paying back for the rest of my life and will in no way uh, economically remunerate me, uh, you know, then then yeah, that's a little disheartening. No, I don't think we've peaked. Um, you know, I gotta stop you right there, pal. Just because you got a degree now doesn't mean you can use words like that. Because I don't even know what the fuck that word is you just used. So I'm gonna need degree? you to pump the brake. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I have a I have a medium to average size vocabulary, and I've never heard that word. Whew, you just I'm said. glad you said vocabulary. <laughs> My mind was going in a different direction. <laughs> Either way, uh, pump the brakes on these fancy on these fancy four dollar words. Where a dollar word will do, okay, buddy. By the way, you can't say medium to average vocabulary. Like, God damn it! I was hoping you wouldn't catch it somehow. Like, I can ask you a question about a movie that we just watched and you won't remember, but if I slip up at all with wording or mispronouncing something, you're like a goddamn bloodhound. <laughs> <laughs> and guys, I, I'm not being dramatic. He actually does it a lot more on our Patreon episodes if you don't listen, but you cannot slip on that on those episodes. Uh, yeah, you, you can't. You just seek it out. Yeah, anyway. uh, can't get you slipping, you know? Yeah, don't don't catch me slipping up. 
Guys, today we are talking about what I would consider to be a very interesting American director. He is someone with a somewhat of a checkered past. You know, his tell-all book kind of continued to make his reputation somewhat suffer, but he was old as fuck, so that he didn't care. But we were talking about uh, Elia Kazan. And uh, how familiar are you with him before we did this episode? I mean, relatively familiar. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how familiar. I guess I don't know what I don't know about him, obviously. But, um, you know, familiar with obviously his uh, his status as the uh, the chief rat in the history of Hollywood, obviously. Uh, familiar with the efforts of people like Kent Jones and Martin Scorsese to uh, rehabilitate his image um, and reputation, and obviously the the films themselves. You know, on the waterfront, East of Eden, uh, movies, uh, uh, Streetcar Named Desire. Obviously, you know, American classics. I've I've seen a lot of um, a lot of his movies. You know, um, so I don't know. I would say medium to average. <laughs> wow, that's great. Medium to average, huh? <laughs> Um, the average knowledge of Kazan, yeah. <laughs> well, I'll tell you. First off, I don't understand. I came across so much shit about people being little bitches about the, the fact that he was a rat. Because it's really interesting when you watch some of those clips. You know when the Oscars gave him like that honorary Oscar and a bunch mm-hmm. of people like sat smug in their seat? Like, oh, mm-hmm. fuck you guys. But then you watch a clip of like Polanski winning an Oscar and those same people like stand up and clap for him. Mm-hmm. And it's like you can have your opinion, but like why do you have to be such hypocritical assholes? <laughs> like <laughs> um and, and and this is coming from someone who wholeheartedly believes in separating the art from the artist. Or like like the person from the art, I should say. Like mm-hmm. um it's interesting uh what's his face? I just blanked on his name. Nick Nolte. Nick Nolte mm-hmm. said that by not standing when Kazan got the honorary Oscar, he ruined his working relationship with Scorsese. Really? Now, I don't know how much you can take that to heart because honestly, I think to myself, you look at everything that Scorsese's done past the the remake that in my opinion didn't need to happen and it only happened because Scorsese was trying to get back in the good graces of Hollywood. What was he going to do in any of those movies? Like Nolte, I like Nolte, but he's a very specific guy. And right. he doesn't strike me as the type that's going to be a quote-unquote like muse for Scorsese. Like it's just interesting to hear some of those stories. It's like did you think you were going to be like in all of his movies afterwards or something? Like it was I like the remake of of Cape Fear, but it's not like it was like it's not like Nolte like hit a home run or anything. So I, I, I take that with a grain of salt. Yeah, like maybe it was a bit presumptive for um, for Nolte to think he would be uh, in any future Scorsese productions. Um, yeah, I don't know, man. There's a lot uh, There's a lot going on here, a lot of moving parts in, a, in the sense that, like, you know, people, people seem to be divided. I mean, I would say, I would say the vast majority of, of people um, have quote unquote forgiven him with a, a very few kind of holdouts who remained seated, or at least it seemed like that to me in the clip. But you know, there was obviously more people standing and cheering than there were um, uh, 
you know, protesting, if, if I guess protesting is the right word. But, yeah, I don't know. There's a lot of different things going on because, um, you know, he always says it harmed his career, but I don't see how that is even, I, I, you know, I, I don't even see how that's even remotely possible, um, that it harmed his career. And... Yeah, I don't know. It's interesting. It's 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 kind of a little little thorny issue. And also, I I agree with you about um, separating the art from the artist. But it does become a little more difficult when you have something like on the waterfront, which seems to be a not so veiled metaphor uh, for exactly what Kazan did in his own personal life. You know what I mean? Like it's it'd be like if. Roman Polanski made a movie about a relationship with a child <laughs> that he had, you know, like it would be, uh, it, it would be a little hard to ignore the, the realities behind the situation. So I don't know. I don't know. It's, it's a, it's a complicated issue and, um, I don't know. We'll, I'm sure we'll, we'll get more deeply into it. No, that's about as deep as I'd like to get into it. Um, okay. That's <laughs> awesome. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, guys, obviously you know this already from looking at the title of the episode you clicked on or download it, whichever. Uh, we're talking about On the Waterfront and a face in the crowd. And I'll tell you, I don't know what I'm more surprised by. Another movie where I'm somewhat on the side of a priest or the fact that a face <laughs> in the crowd is Andy Griffith's first movie, which I've seen a face in the crowd before this, and I had no idea that that was his first movie. I assumed... Andy Griffith was a Holly, he's a Hollywood legend. You know, he's, he's been, you know, obviously the TV show, one of the biggest things he did, Matt Locke. I mean, he's a guy that got around. I would have never guessed in a million years that a face in the crowd was his first movie because that performance was fucking amazing. Mm -hmm. It's just nuts. But either yeah, way, I mean, I don't know. I, I got a little more to say about that when we get to it, but, um, Oh, let me guess. You didn't like it. You didn't like his performance. Um, no, that's not the case. Uh, I can't trust you at this point. <laughs> um, so, so on the waterfront is the only reason a face in the crowd was able to happen because on the waterfront mm. was a huge success. Academy award winning the birth of method acting. I mean, it, it you know, a true American story that had like somewhat of a meta feel, as you previously mentioned, it dealt with something that was going on in America pretty much on a regular basis in terms of union corruption and, and mafia relationships and whatnot. And it's a really interesting story because, you know, David Thompson points this out in, in his entry on Kazan, which is, uh, he is an immigrant. He moved over here at at four. And we were going to talk about America, America, which shows you he kind of didn't lose those roots, but it's like three hours long, so we're going to tackle it later. So we decided to do these two instead. But it's interesting that he's able to make something like On the Waterfront or East of Eden or especially A Face in the Crowd, in my opinion, uh, that that feels so American. Now, obviously, moving over here at four, he he lived his life in America, but it's still interesting. I, I always find it interesting when when an immigrant writer or director can capture something like America's essence, if you will. Yeah, I think that happens um, kind of pretty often, where you have like you know 
uh, people from a different background are kind of almost more qualified uh, than actual Americans to kind of point out um, or, or portray or, or examine American cultural norms because uh, they are able to kind of objectively assess them as an outsider. I mean, that's not always the case, but it, it, it is sometimes the case. And, um, yeah, I think Kazan is a great example of that. I mean, he obviously was, um, you know, an American, you know, through and through, but, but there is that kind of immigrant outsider status that um, I think allows him to really uh, challenge and think about and examine some of the things that, you know, a, a, a born, a purebred, <laughs> purebred American uh, might, uh, might take for granted, you know, um, or yeah, take for granted and kind of leave unexamined, you know, but no, I agree with you. I mean, it's, it's the, the concept of American and American ideas and so forth, and especially in a face in the crowd, um, is very central to his work. Yeah. Now it's funny because I don't know if you, I don't know if you remember seeing this, but a few years ago with the rise of Trump and, and what was going on in America, a face in the crowd kind of had a resurgence, mm. uh, because obviously because of what it portrayed, uh, in, in the movie. And I thought that was interesting. Um, cause you know, I haven't seen a face in the crowd since I watched it on uh, Turner Classic Movies when I was younger. Um, and it's interesting. And I looked up these old clips, and it really like took me back. Uh, because Spike Lee, this was this was weird. We, we picked a face in the crowd after postponing America America because of the length. And that was the double header that Spike Lee picked. Spike Lee picked on the waterfront and a face in the crowd when he was was on Turner Classic Movies, and I thought oh, that was, thought that was kind of funny. Interesting. Yeah. yeah I, so so maybe it was buried in my subconscious somewhere when we were talking about a second one. But uh, anyway, I looked up those old clips, and it was just so cool to see Spike Lee talk about it. And he collects posters from old movies, and he had one with like Schulberg's signature. Unfortunately, he didn't get Kazan's, but. Um, it was just really cool to hear him talk about it, but he he kind of touched on that. And then I remember, you know, I obviously having just watched it for this episode, like a few movies come to mind about this, like most notably Network and All the King's Men. Like, mm. especially in the beginning, you really get a Network feel, and I'm a huge fan of that movie, so it might just be me kind of forcing it, but I do feel like there's something there. Do you agree? Yeah, no, I mean, they're both kind of commentaries on, you know, mass American culture and, and kind of how poisonous and how, um, you know, how, uh, you know, I, th there gets to be this cliche when it comes to movies and which is that it's very prescient, right? That it's very, um, wow, like he, this movie saw how the future would be. And I... I mean, that's obviously definitely true in some movies, right? But I think that uh, I think that kind of label gets um, gets attached to movies that are really just describing their present and us calling them like prescient or like, wow, this movie really told the future or whatever, or saw forward into the future of America is just kind of like an ignorance of the actual 
uh, situation that the movie is depicting and the the environment that the movie came out in, right? Like th- this kind of issue, you know, everybody wants to relate it to Trump, and it really does relate to Trump in a really, really, on a really, really good level. But like it existed in 1957 as well. This this problem of you know this kind of um, uh, personality you know, becoming such a dominant force in American life or American politics, you know, that shit has been going on since pretty early in America's history. You know, I mean, Andrew Jackson is one of the most famous examples of that, where, like, you know, ostensibly, you know, if you if you um, look at the Disney-fied version of American history, it's like, oh, he's old hickory, you know, and he... he was the first common man to be in the White House, and he had a party where all the people could come on the White House lawn and and have a big party or whatever. And it's like, yeah, I mean, he also like like ramped up the the kind of slaughter of Native Americans, like it, like he multiplied it times ten compared to what people were doing before and after him. So like, it, it's it's. It's this it's this idea where like this kind of deeply reactionary and deeply harmful ideology gets kind of yeah like little populist you know every man voice it's and we see it in the face in the crowd where you know Andy Griffith is just like well I'm just an old country boy and it's like eh, yeah okay you know <laughs> like I don't know who you think you're fooling pal you know uh, and uh, yeah, I don't know. I guess, I guess, I guess I'm saying that, like, and, and no, I don't. Please don't misunderstand. I'm not saying that you are saying that at all. But I, I feel like that's a, that's a controversy that gets, or that's a a label that gets leveled at network too. Of like, wow, like it was really prescient, really predict things. And it's like, no, that's how things were back then. Like that, there was just, they were just reading the writing on the wall of this new uh, this new medium of television and the potential that it had to exacerbate a pre-existing problem you know what i'm saying well i think that i i agree with what you're saying because i i think when we we do have a tendency especially now we act like some of these problems only exist within our lifetime and yeah, a lot of these right. things predicted it because we obviously weren't alive a lot of us who who, who watch these movies now and we weren't alive to experience like the new form of, of of a way to get information out, like television with network and and mm-hmm. with this one, like I'm sorry, when you look at a lot of shit that was going on, just because the records weren't as good as they have been for the last twenty or thirty years doesn't mean that that same type of borderline celebrity worship and 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 audience manipulation wasn't happening. Like we so we can I don't understand why it's difficult to say, yeah, it's applicable now, but it was also happening then. We can't mm-hmm. just pretend it's only happening right now because that makes right. no sense. Um, right, and and it, and it was happening in and it was happening uh, in the radio era, right? Oh, it absolutely. Was happening in the newsprint era, it's just that, like like a lot of things with technology, you know, like Twitter. And, you know, going back to television and then radio, like the, the mediums have changed and the mediums have accelerated and, ex- like I said, exacerbated a pre-existing problem. But the medium is not the issue, right? The medium, nothing wrong with TV. Like the issue is the way that it is used for, like you said, you know, kind of mass manipulation and, um, uh, well, yeah, I guess that's it, mass manipulation. Um, 
Well, I mean, if you, you if you want to just real quick, if you want to see the power of of the radio, you know, this is kind of bring it full circle, which is a man who who did not like Kazan, which is Orson Welles. Like, look at yeah. the power of the radio with War of the Worlds. I mean, yeah. So when you start looking at how people like reactionary things where it's like, oh, just because TV didn't exist doesn't mean that people didn't have these emotional and very visceral reactions to what was going on. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's like uh, it's like the same thing. with, And I guess we're I guess maybe I'm beating a dead horse at this point, but it's the same thing with like 1984 or or um, like uh, Aldous Huxley and like Brave New World. And it's like what like what do you think these guys were like uh uh like future tellers you know you think they had like crystal balls and shit and it's like no they're writing about the issues of their own time it's just that we have a poor understanding of that because that shit still applies today so so we think it's like wow they really they really saw into the future and it's like no they were writing about their own time we're just too ignorant to realize that you know yeah um, and 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 also like i i feel like we we have a tendency you know, and none of us are, are immune to this. We have a tendency to have a somewhat like bottled view of what's happening. So it's like, well, no, they couldn't have been dealing with these problems because we're dealing with them on such this massive, miserable scale that, of right. course, when Huxley wrote, he, he, he wasn't referencing to his time. And it's like, well, just because the problem got worse doesn't mean it wasn't there. So, right, right. Like I saw I saw a statistic that um kind of shocked me which was and I, I think this was this was in Kazan's head you know even if he didn't know this statistic this uh this number of uh like which is I, I think uh five percent of American households or two percent or something like that owned televisions in 1950 and then that number was 80 percent in 1957 so I mean you're talking about seven years where I mean, like eighty percent, essentially eighty percent of the U.S. population bought a TV. Like that is a shocking cultural shift. Like that's just—it's just—it's just huge. I, I couldn't believe that statistic when I read it, and it's similar to the kind of smartphone revolution where it was like in two thousand eight. You know, the iPhone comes out, and then by like two thousand twelve, everybody's got an iPhone, and it's like, how the fuck did that happen? Like. How did everybody? How did everybody get one of these over the past like presidential during the second Obama term? You know, like it's kind of just shocking how 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 quickly some of that shit happens. And I think I think that's something Kazan is is really addressing. Like, holy shit, this thing really caught fire, didn't it? Like, and it doesn't appear like it's going anywhere. Like, you know, it's 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 a really um, it's a really interesting phenomenon. Um, well, I, I don't know. I, I, did, you, did you want to talk about facing the crowd first, or? Oh no, we can talk about on the waterfront. Um, okay. But I did want to say, first of all, I agree with you. Those statistics always blow my mind when I see stuff like that. And cell phones continue to blow my mind because everyone has one, and they're the price of what a used car used to be. Mm, it's it's right. fucking crazy to me. Um, right. But either way, often, often more important to people than their car. Oh, absolutely. You know I mean? As oh, yeah. far as like applying for jobs, and, you know, what I mean, like if you don't have Internet now, like you're, you know, it, it's difficult to find a job, you know. But real quick, just to before we jump into on the waterfront, because we're going to have more to say about a face in the crowd. Clearly on the waterfront, <laughs> it's an American classic. 
it's a movie that's been beloved since it came out. It's one of the greatest American movies ever made. So there's not a ton to say about it. It's more of an actor's movie. But there's a couple of things I want to just make sure we we clarify. Basically, when we say rat, in case you guys aren't familiar, like go go do your own research because it's really interesting. But uh, Kazan was a member of the Communist Party, and then he he changed his beliefs, changed everything, changed. So he signed a he he basically uh, uh, to work in Hollywood again. He ratted out all of his friends and people he knew that were part of the Communist Party, had attended meetings. In, and, and in the age of the Red Scare McCarthyism, this was a huge deal, and people were getting blacklisted left and right. Um, and that that's what resulted in a lot of people being like, fuck you. And that carrying through, you know, all the way until his death, really. As you said, some people have, have, have kind of righted or, or, you know, kind of corrected it or forgiven him, quote unquote. But either way, that's really what happened. And I think that's important just to kind of make sure we explain the context of that, because on the waterfront, as you already pointed out, deals with something that feels very meta when you look at the filmmaker. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and yeah, just to piggyback off of that. Yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, and and, well, during the 30s, it was very um, sexy to be a communist. You know, it was very uh, in vogue, you know, and kind of hip, Um, which is not to say that there wasn't, um, you know, actual like, uh, like uh, uh, working class, uh, issues and 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 the need for reforms and things like that like obviously um there were certain things that were good that got done or whatever but it was it was very um fashionable uh, to be a communist at that time and you know Kazan was obviously a member of the communist party and then um I also want to clarify like he I, I, you know I, he had worked in Hollywood but like his career really blew up after he name names right like it, oh absolutely was, i mean yeah he signed a whole new contract and all that after he named names right right so like it was it, like it was pretty evident that like whatever happened to kazan was the exact opposite of the blacklist right where like he named names and he also like ruined the careers of a handful of people the handful of people that he named names of and uh and kind of you know piggybacked that onto his own crazy success and it's also something that I, I was trying to read some kind of responses that he, you know, that he says, and he's kind of all over the place. Like, he's kind of like, well, you know, I'm not a communist anymore, or like, I don't see what the big deal was, or like, the people the people that I named, like, they already knew that I was going to name them, and uh, they were fine with it, or whatever. Like, he has, like, kind of a bunch of different defenses, and really seemed to kind of flail in that regard. Like, and he never kind of like, well, I, I th- actually, I do, I do think there's a couple of sources where he was like, yeah, I was wrong. It was a mistake, you know, and it's just, um, you can tell it's something that he got pressured into and then he caved under the pressure and he felt bad about it, I think, or defensive about it or whatever. He clearly never had like a, a clear, like, oh, this is why I did it. You know, like he just kind of flailed in that regard and I think that's something a lot of people held against him. But I also think that, you know, someone like Scorsese, you know, his defense of him is uh, primarily aesthetic, 
You know, I think Scorsese is like, I could care less about any of that shit. All I know is it affected, like, the his work affected me. And it's part of the reason that I became a filmmaker. So it's uh, it's on Scorsese's part, I think, and a lot of, like, art artists who, who kind of backed him uh, later on. And, you know, obviously they gave him an honorary Oscar and stuff. I think it's a willful disregard for kind of... Uh, you know, him naming names to Joseph McCarthy. And I don't even mean that in a negative context. I mean, they just, like, are just like, no, I don't care about that shit. I care what his movies did for me emotionally and aesthetically. And I think that's a valid point of view, especially for an artist. And especially for an artist as massive and major as Scorsese. Like, you know, like, I, it's it's completely valid to feel that way about, about an artist, you know? Um, well, I think what always strikes me about him as an artist and, and how somebody like, you know, my favorite film filmmaker uh, being so obsessed with him is it's a guy who he, he had such a major influence on American cinema, but in my opinion, he didn't have a signature directing style. I mean, he's known as an actor's, he he's known as an actor's director. Right. Um, so to me, he doesn't, it's it's just I guess what I'm saying is there's there's not a big signature style there, like in my opinion, like he it, it's right. just more of the material that he chose to tackle, and and you know I'm not gonna discount his work, but we have to acknowledge that he worked with two of the greatest actors of all time, like Brando invented method acting, so that can't right. go ignored, and and Dean was gone too soon, but he's considered also one of the greatest actors of all time. Mm -hmm. So I just, I, that that's what I find most interesting about him as a filmmaker is, is the fact that he just didn't have a, a particularly strong style, but he still had such a massive influence on everything. Yeah, no, I think that's, I think that's right. I think that's, um, and, and it also necessitates, you know, kind of fully, um, fully uh, you know comprehending Kazan I think it, it also is necessary to understand the kind of cultural context that he was that he was working in right the Hollywood of the 50s was a Hollywood of gimmicks and uh and uh, uh what's the word I'm looking for like uh, thrills chills and spill you know like a spectacle right it was a, it was a Hollywood that was getting slowly more and more scared of television and so, you know, widescreen, CinemaScope, you know, all the 50s, you know, like uh, than it had been in the 40s. You know, this is this is a Hollywood that is focused on gimmickry and thrills and chills, right? Um, and uh, Kazan was not interested in any of that shit, you know. He, uh, and I, I, I agree with you, by the way, I don't think there's like a defining directorial style, but it's maybe more of a sensibility, right? Like, I don't think there's a a style that we can point to, but we can point to like a sensibility and a kind of material he chose to work with. Because, I mean, he started out in the theater and was probably the most important, at least from my research. I mean, I, I don't, I don't know a lot about American post-war theater, but I know that Kazan was probably by far the most important director of post-war theater uh, in the United States. And I think that, that that phrase indicates maybe more prestige than it actually had at the time because a theater is not a director's medium 
right? The theater is a writer's medium. There's a reason why we know the name of Tennessee Williams, and the only reason we know the name of Ilya Kazan is because he was a movie director, right? On the movie set, the director is king, but on the on the stage, the writer is often most given the most credit for um, for the work, for the the artistic achievement. And so, what we have, I think, with Kazan is we have somebody who is uh, his primary mode of expression was in transforming uh, different subject matter. And I think David Thompson says, like, was he a was he a, a a radical, you know, or was he just a, a master of naturalistic melodrama? And I think it's definitely the latter. I think that's the best way to describe him. He was a master of this kind of very naturalistic melodrama that was born on the stage and that he brought to cinema. And a lot of that, a, a lot of that work was done via the method, you know, via, via method acting and via, um, you know, his attention, like you said, he was an actor's director. So it, I think it's important to put him in his place in this context. He was very, it was very clear he was zagging, you know, to Hollywood's uh, zig. You know, he was, uh, he, he was definitely doing something different, but he was doing something, um, like you said, without necessarily a definable style, uh, but a sensibility that, that, was, that was different than what was going on at the time. And and I will say that and, and getting into on the waterfront, I will say that we we've talked about this on the podcast before, and I think it it can't go without being recognized that 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 being an actor's director is a true talent because it is not easy to wrangle right. some of these guys in. I could not imagine dealing with Marlon Brando, unlike straight out of that acting school, with method. Like that was, it was somewhat of a new concept and, and, and that probably like anybody else could have fucked that up in terms of and how those guys were going to be same with Dean. So mm. I think that, uh, I think, I think that, that he, he does. Yeah. Like that, that's just kind of, I just wanted to point that out is what I'm saying. So yeah, yeah, yeah. it's like lassoing a tornado or something like it's, uh, and, and it's also like a way to make movies, right? We've talked about that a lot before about like, how like um, you know being an actor's director, quote unquote, or focusing you know really intently on the acting in your movies, like that shouldn't be a mark against you. You know what I mean? That's it's a way to make movies, and it's you know it's all about the the final product. You know, in a way. So um, so yeah, I don't know how you want to tackle this. How you want to tackle on the waterfront? Well, I mean, for those of you that maybe aren't familiar with it, basically an ex fighter. Uh, works for the mob and and uh, corrupt union bosses. Essentially, his older brother is connected as well, and uh, everything is kind of incited by the murder of what goes on to be his quote unquote love interest. And um, he slowly starts to realize that what he's a part of is a problem, and essentially turns on them. And testifies, and it's based on uh, a true story, as far as I know, of a of a priest who stood up against corruption at the New Jersey docks, and the priest plays a big role in it. And um, mm. and I don't know, man. This movie this movie stands on its own feet through and through. I mean, it's one of the greatest American classics ever made. Marlon Brando turns in one of the greatest performances of any film. Uh, the score is just beyond 
perfection. And uh, I don't know, man. I, I love this movie. I love a lot of, of what it represents and, and what it approaches. And and uh, I honestly just enjoy it every time I watch it. I think if you are a quote-unquote cinephile, you've seen this movie probably more times than you can count. Because back when you back when cable existed and Turner Classic Movies and other things, if you came across On the Waterfront, odds are you're going to watch it for the contender scene alone. Like, who doesn't? There's a reason it has like a million views on YouTube. People love that scene. It's fucking great. Or the glove scene. Um, I don't know. What's your experience with this movie? I know you've said you've seen it a lot. Yeah, I mean, this was, this was you know, my very first uh, 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 journey into kind of uh, watching movies that, that weren't just, um, you know, movies that just came out recently and, and were kids' movies or whatever, was the um, AFI uh, Top 100 list from, I think, 1998. Um, and I discovered in, in, in probably 2002, 2003, when I was in high school, I, uh, I just kind of went down that list, starting with Kane, and I think Casablanca was two, Godfather was three, you know, just went down the list. And... On the Waterfront was obviously very high on that list. And I also, uh, you know, this is, I say this is unfortunate, but, you know, everybody's got their road to, to cinephilia, so I don't, I don't guess it's technically unfortunate. It's just a fact. Uh, another one was, um, you know, the Academy Awards. And it's like, oh, well, this, this movie has to be important because it won an Oscar. And I think On the Waterfront cleaned up basically at the Oscars. Um, so early on, I, 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 I watched this and deemed this as a very important movie that I should be aware of and interested in and kind of study almost to learn about movies. And, you know, I, I don't think it's quite up on that level anymore for me, but it, it's, it's one of those American classics that just gets uh, ingrained in you. And then it's almost kind of difficult to see in fresh light, if that makes sense. Um, because, it's just so cliched and or it has become such a cliche. It could have been a contender. I mean, you know, it could have been a contender. It's probably a, a joke on Jay Leno's monologue in 1999. You know, like it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a phrase everybody knows and everybody understands the reference, you know. Um, and it's kind of hard to get back to watching the movie as it, as it is. And, um, but when you actually confront the movie on its own terms and try to think about it as an original piece of cinema and I'm glad you I'm glad we did an episode on it because I've seen it a bunch of times but I haven't seen it in a few years and so I felt like I, last night I felt like I was watching it with kind of fresh new eyes and I was I was kind of just struck by the artistic vision and by the kind of um, the thing that kept coming up for me was uh, something we've talked about quite a bit on the podcast through a couple of, of episodes that I've picked the movies for, which is poetic realism. You know, this movie really struck me as an example of that, an American example of that in the sense that, you know, it's, it's kind of like allegedly realistic, but it's not realistic, right? It's in black and white and it's, and it's very foggy and, and, and it is really kind of pales in comparison as far as like it's adherence, it, it, it's adherence to, supposed realism as you know bicycle thieves does right like it's 
these things get called realistic, but they're really not. You know, they're melodramatic, which is fine, right? Like I don't I don't want I don't want pure realism in the movies. Who wants that, you know? But it's kind of heightened and stylized. So we get this kind of emotional realism, right? Our our goal here is to get to the to the the beating pounding heart of Marlon Brando's character in this movie. And that is, I think, the the primary achievement of On the Waterfront, to me at least, you know. Um, I don't know. What about you? I mean, I, I do have to push back a little bit on I understand that it's it's kind of a cliche at this point, but I mean, you can say that with a lot of American classics, just like Godfather, you know, every time I try to get out to pull him back in or the door close or the betrayal scene. I mean, there's a there's a lot of things you can kind of poke fun at or, or kind of become a cliche at this point, and and I and I and I know that I could have been a contender is a bit on several comedies that I've seen over the years, right, um, right, right. But I mean, to me, it still holds everything up. Now, this isn't a movie that I that I revisit as often as I do other classics. I do agree with you on that one. It's not like a go to for me, but um, I, I I prefer this. Over East of Eden, I know that friend of the pod, David Thompson, says he he thinks East of Eden is his best movie. Um, I actually don't agree. Like East of Eden is 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 great, but I think on the I would take on the waterfront, a face in the crowd, uh, Wild River, uh, to an extent, America, America. I mean, there's there's a few movies that I would take over what some people consider to be his best movie. I think East of Eden is so big because of Dean's performance, uh, but this movie has something special because everybody kind of kills it. Like you have some legendary actors in this, in this film. Uh, Carl Malden as, as father Barry is fantastic. I mean, the, the, the church scene before they all like get jumped is just such a powerful scene and his, and his scenes back and forth with Terry, as you can tell, Terry's kind of turning still hold a lot of power for me, but it, it was just, it was really interesting I, I think as I get older and rewatch this movie again and again, Terry is Jesus basically, <laughs> which <laughs> I find to be funny. And I, and I, and I, and the reason I find it to be so funny is because, you know, watching this as a, as a kid, just because, Oh, it's Brando, like fucking Brando. Like this is the guy, this is the guy everybody talks about Pacino and De Niro idolized this guy. And then you don't really think much of it. And then you watch it when you're a little older and you're like, the religious context here is really interesting. And then it just occurs mm. to you one day, he's Jesus. Right. <laughs> it's like, right. He, he just has more than 12 apostles. Um, right. So, yeah, I, I loved it this time around for this episode. I do think with with Brando's character, Terry, kind of realizing he's he's in the wrong and turning on them, as we've already pointed out, that was a little a little meta kind of a, uh, I don't really know what was going through Kazan's head when he's, he's putting this on camera. Like I would be very curious to see because he was, he wasn't always defiant in interviews about asking if like, do you, do you think you were wrong or would you take it back? But he was never what I would call fully apologetic either. Right. Right. So I think at one point he they asked him if he would take it back in an interview and he was like, no, why do I give a damn? He's like, hey, you know, I did what I thought was right. And it's like, 
yeah, like you, I think his defiance possibly lessened. I haven't watched all of his interviews clearly, but uh, so I just I, I think it's really interesting. It's it's an it's an interesting uh, way to talk about the movie. That's for sure. Yeah, I mean, and I should clarify when I when I refer to it as cliche, I mean like I mean one of those situations where element elements from the movie like make him an offer he can't refuse has become a cliche, right? Like yeah, it, it it's like separated itself from the movie. Right. But like when you go back to the text, right, when you go back to the movie itself, you don't feel any of that cliche. Like nothing feels nothing feels dated or tired or about it or anything. You know, like it still feels like a fresh piece of of performance and cinema. Um, But as far as the the kind of meta aspects of it, you know, I. I'm just going to say it. I think it's kind of almost insane that he, you know, did what he did, right? Which is essentially rat people out and ruin people's careers for his own advantage, right? And because he he particularly was was scared, which, you know, I'm not going to judge him because, I mean, shit, you know, you just never know what you do in a situation like that. But what I do think is the ultimate act of kind of insane hubris is then to make a movie with Marlon Brando as essentially this sacrificial Jesus character who, you know, is pilloried for testifying against the mob. And it's like, brother, the 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 Communist Party, which essentially like barely existed in 1952, like was not the mob. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like the the parallels here are strained at at best and at at worst are kind of insane and self-aggrandizing but i don't think that takes away from the power of the movie itself but it is it is it is interesting to view things through that lens cuz it's like dude if you think you, what you did in real life is similar to what marlon brando did in this movie like who pal i don't know man like that <laughs> that's uh that's a tough one i got to be honest but it doesn't take away from the power while you're watching. It doesn't take away from Brando's, um, you know, and I guess, I guess I'm hitting it a little, I'm hitting the note a little hard when I say like, it's not realism. It's not realism, but like maybe that, that kind of critical consensus has gone by, right? Like nobody believes this movie is, is like actually realism anymore. And in the same way that nobody really takes Italian neorealism, quote unquote, seriously, it's just a different style, a different way of, of making movies and I, I think the core part of it is that we get closer to this emotional center of the movie which is Brando's character and we um, we kind of look it right in the face you know and I, I think his scenes with Ava Marie Saint are some of the best in the movie uh, because we really get to see his vulnerability kind of laid bare and the the how how in some ways he he's just kind of a confused little boy in a way you know and it's just uh i don't know man it, it's just a really really fascinating movie and fascinating performance and it's hard to deny some of the real you know emotional moments in this movie like you you can talk about him being a rat you can talk about you know a million other things but when it comes right down to it it's like this this is real, man. This is real emotion. This is real naturalistic melodrama that makes you feel things on display in this movie, and it's uh, it, it's it's everywhere in the camera work, in the performances, in the score. It's 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 a complete and total work of art in that way. 
Um, well, I think yeah. it's interesting, and I want to touch on this, and then we can move on to a face in the crowd. When you say, like, standing up, like, like, like uh, ratting out your friends isn't the same as standing up to the mob. Like, right. like ratting out the Holly. You know, I, I, I obviously 100% agree with that. But where things get really interesting, and this is what I focus on when I say, like, I wonder what was going through his head, is Terry, Brando's character, clearly doesn't have a realistic view of himself. It, it made me think of The Last Duel, and clearly there's several movies I could reference, but The Last Duel was interesting to me because it allows you to see in somewhat, sometimes, not obviously every time, in sometimes a comical way of how we view ourselves as opposed to how we're viewed by others. And with Terry, oh, okay. with Terry, like he implies that if I hadn't thrown those fights for you, I could have won every fight. And it's like, well, that's not the case, Terry. Like, let's let's be real. You're you're a washed up fighter. Like, we never got to see you in your prime, but odds are you've always been a bum. But there were times when he's talking where he feels like he was bigger than he was. And that could just be me, but I don't think it is. No, 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 no. You're onto something there. I like this take. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That 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 Terry is almost I mean this word doesn't quite or this description doesn't quite fit but like he's almost like an unreliable narrator in a way yeah of, his, of yeah his like own. a Barry Lyndon type situation mm okay yeah 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 no i like this take yeah like he's and in some ways then the movie is even more meta it's like double meta in a way right because Kazan is kind of the unreliable narrator of his own you know, experience like equating writing on his friends to to standing up to the mob, and that's uh, wow, that's that's really interesting, man. Yeah, because no, I I see exactly what you're saying, where it's like the whole I could have been a contender speech, and the the brutal, and I mean brutal truth of that is like, could you have been? We sure about that, or is that just is that just a lie you tell yourself to to make all this go down a little bit easier? The fact that you could have had a way out, but you didn't take it. You know. Well, I mean, who wouldn't lie to themselves yeah. when when they are muscle for the mob? Like, you you have to make yourself feel better about what you're doing, and that's just the way he chose to go about it. And where it really gets interesting is when you look at the autobiography that Kazan put out where he kind of boasted about his treatment of women and how many times he was he committed adultery, essentially, mm-hmm. with with a lot of these, with a lot of these uh, actors' wives and stuff, and it makes me wonder, like, what was your view of yourself? Um, right. It's right. just really, I don't know. It's just really, it's really interesting, especially when you look. I think that book came out in eighty nine or ninety one. I've never read it, but I've heard. Uh, I mean, David Thompson even wrote that it's his best. It's his best book because he wrote yeah. more than one book. It's supposedly great, like, and and I think that element is what a lot of people like about it is the f- I think there's an essay on the Criterion Collection on on the waterfront that uh calls it a corrosive biography which I thought was a great phrase and um yeah I'd be fascinated to read it too but no I like that I like that take man because that's you know he, he made a movie you know just to like tie it up in a little bow like yeah he made this was a man who had a very uh inaccurate or confusing self-concept of himself 
and on the waterfront is a movie about a man whose concept of himself may not be accurate that's that's no that's good that's that that's really really interesting i'm gonna i'm gonna literally think about it differently next time i watch on the waterfront that's uh yeah that's interesting well, I think that's a good transition for another movie about a man who doesn't really know how to view himself. Um, a Face in the Crowd. I, I, I feel like this movie is a bit underviewed. I, I feel like maybe it doesn't get the credit it deserves, but I am a fan of the, of the story that absolute power corrupts absolutely, et cetera, et cetera. At this point, this feels like a gimmick. You know, we've seen so many movies right. about this. Right. Uh, but I, I do have to say, if you have not seen the original All the King's Men or Network, go watch them because I think that's a that's a really like trippy triple feature. This is basically about a female radio reporter who uh finds a a drifter who is like a country singer, folk singer kind of guy, and turns him into I mean, essentially a god. I mean, we start, we start, we start with this man in prison for for public uh, intoxication, and before it's all said and done, this guy is helping get someone elected president, trying to figure out a cabinet position for him, mm-hmm. and all that happens in the span of two hours. So that's a hell of a a trip. Um, I, I want to say that there was another performance i think it'll come to me i'll have to look it up or it'll come to me but there is another performance by one of the female uh one of his one of his co one of his women co-stars uh that's also her first performance and uh i think it was the young girl he ends up marrying but don't quote me on uh, that the baton twirler yeah yeah Um, i think that's it yeah but either way i mean we get a very serious walter Matthau who delivers it doesn't matter if this shit happened in 1957 or, or, or now. It doesn't matter how many times this story has been uh, used in in any form of, of media. The speech he delivers at the end still hits hard. I mean, mm. uh, but was this your first time seeing it? Well, it's funny you say that because I had an, an experience watching this because I watched it last night along, along with On the Waterfront. Um, I, I had an experience watching this that I rarely have, which is because I wasn't, I wasn't raised on classic movies. I don't think I saw a black and white movie until I was in high school. You know, like it just, it just wasn't, it just wasn't part of my, uh, you know, growing up. And so I had a really fun experience rewatching this because I, I have seen this movie before, but I have not seen it as like a conscious adult watcher. You know what I mean? Like, you know, like a where you like put the movie on your Netflix queue and you, you know, you purposefully watch it. And usually that is reserved for movies like, say, Zoolander or something. Right. Like movies I've seen, but I just saw like at a party when I was a kid or something. I'm just using Zoolander as an example. Um, But like this is a movie I for some reason have actually seen before because I remember it beat for beat. But I never kind of consciously watched it as a as a consumer. So I don't know if my my grandparents had this on TV or something or like, I, I don't know. My parents didn't watch old movies, so I have absolutely no idea where I would have ever seen this. But I remember it beat for beat. Uh, uh, so, yeah, that, that was a 
an interesting experience for me because I never have that experience. Usually when I have that experience with a movie, it's a movie that came out in the 90s, you know. Um, well, it's funny because I was never a fan of the Andy Griffith show, but I, I grew up watching Matlock. So oh, okay. when I watched this movie and saw Matlock being a fucking psycho, uh, it was a real strange experience for me when I was a kid. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell you this. I never saw Matlock. I don't think I've ever seen an episode of Matlock. We, I did watch the Andy Griffith show as a kid. Um, that was, yeah, that was one of the ones. So that was, I was familiar with Andy Griffith, but, uh, but yeah, Dude, at some Matt, point I, I, you can't beat Matlock and Columbo. That's a hell of a doubleheader. God, man, I, I never watched them when I was a kid, man. I don't know why. Um, yeah, I don't know why. Um, but anyway, sorry to interrupt you. So what did you think of this movie watching it now through the eyes of like an adult and, and being able to, to grasp what's going on? You know, I thought it was really kind of a fascinating movie. I do think it is, it is a great movie. I, I definitely think it is, um, you know, very similar to Network and, and and it's kind of diagnosis of like American social problems. But I also want to, I just, I, just as briefly, I want a quick shout out. I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but Criterion has a, a, a collection called The Golden Age of Television, uh, which uh, th- th- has some basically teleplays, is what they were called, uh, and that used to be shown on American television, early, early television. I think the first one is from 52 and all the way up through 55. And these would be uh, kind of serious plays that were put on you know, for an hour or 90 minutes or whatever and filmed in real time, right? Like they were filmed live. And a lot of them aren't even on 35 millimeter film. They're on something called, uh, uh, I forget what it's called, but it's it's something in between videotape and, and, and like actual 35 millimeter film, the technology, where like the only reason we have copies of them is because they pointed a 35 millimeter camera at a TV that was airing the the episode, if that makes sense. You know what I mean? So like... Wow. The actual, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, it, like they didn't, they didn't film it on actual film. They just filmed it live and broadcast it via satellite. You know, like they do CNN or something. And then they would point a camera at the TV and be like, "Well, let's, we'll, we'll have this in case we need to broadcast this again, in case we need something to take up an hour in the future or whatever." So it's like it's a really primitive technology. But my my point in saying all that is this was uh, uh, an area that Kazan came from as well. Because that was a really, really fruitful um, that 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 world of, of television at the time was a very, very fruitful place for method actors to get their start. Uh, Brando was in some stuff uh, uh, from back then. I think James Dean maybe, but I don't know. He was too handsome to uh, to probably be in any of that stuff. But uh, a lot of those, and that was the world that Kazan came out of the the New York television theater. Uh, world was was very very similar, and and Kazan brought the that sensibility uh, to Hollywood essentially. So I wanted to shout that out. Man, what um, what a time to have been in show business! Wow. Yeah, yeah, man, it's crazy. I mean, and and Andy Griffith too. Also, just another connection. Andy Griffith's uh, Broadway show, No Time for Sergeants, um, which was a Broadway show that he was in before he was in facing the crowd there was a teleplay of that show that got put on that is in that criterion box set and the sad thing is criterion only there's only like six teleplays in that which is cool but like 
man, oh man, could you imagine like if if we had like an archive of that shit? It would be so incredible to go back and see like some of the shit that like Patty Chayefsky was writing in the fifties, you know, with, with chat, all these like New York method actors, you know, like that's, sh- that, that shit would just be really cool to see, you know? Well, um, I mean, I think what's crazy is like, is, is Andy Griffith is considered this America's dad kind of guy. Like he, he, he dominated right. TV. Right. And, and we have Matlock and we have the Andy Griffith show and, and all the stuff he was doing, uh, and it's crazy. And I, I'm saying this as someone who has not seen everything he's done. I only saw, obviously I saw the same thing. Everybody else saw TV movies. He did the TV shows he was in. I think it's kind of crazy that I think the best thing he did was out of the gate. I mean, I don't think he's ever given a performance better and more all over the place than in this movie. But I'm saying that as a non-Andy Griffith like expert. Well, let's talk about that performance a little bit because I don't uh, know, because man. his jaw was tired from chewing up all the scenery. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he this this dude going off in this movie like <laughs> every scene, dude. He never yeah. let up. Yeah, it, it's. It's fascinating to me because, like, this was a very, you know, Andy Griffith was not a method actor necessarily, but he, he was in that same environment. Like, he was, like I said, he was in New York on Broadway. That's how Kazan knew him, et cetera. But the difference between, like, Brando's kind of subdued, uh, n- almost neurotic performance is completely different from uh, from Andy Griffith. Andy Griffith is, like, manic in this movie. Like, he, I don't know, man. He's really going for it. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think he's an alcoholic and he has some he has some undiagnosed mental issues. Uh, that That's <laughs> for sure. Yeah, I mean, he just uh, he's really he really puts the pedal to the floor um, early on and doesn't let up. And I would even say that that his performance brings a kind of manic quality to the movie itself like oh well do and everything like you do people like the agent guy was also super creepy it's like he was the devil i mean there was a lot of weird stuff about this movie it wasn't just his performance there was like there was some legitimate like weirdness and strangeness to it to me yeah like the 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 scene the uh, extended uh the extended sequence in the middle where he meets the baton twirling 17 year old. <laughs> so fucking weird, dude. That, that scene is like something out of a Fellini movie. If Fellini, like if Fellini had taken acid or something like it's just so long and drawn out and so loud. And it's just like, Ooh, man, I don't know. Like it's like, that, that's why I think like you can't peel, you can't pin, a real style to Kazan because it, you know, you, you think you're getting the kind of like low key naturalism of on the waterfront. And it's like, no, this, this movie could not be more different than that in tone, but there is still that kind of emotional realism, you know, getting to the, uh, getting to the heart of, of, you know, kind of, a a, a sin uh, an, a, that America has, you know, a flaw, that America has. Um, well, I mean, what was so great about that scene is 
is she does her routine and then she wins and then they've been locking eyes for for the entire time and she's like i have a poster of you on my wall you're my idol and then you're like okay well i mean clearly he's gonna bang this chick like that's Mm. that's gonna happen right but the next scene it's like well this is the new this is my new wife we're married and it's like oh my god dude you really commit hard don't you like you you know what movie reminded me of in that regard? It reminded me of like the cynicism of Ace in the Hole. Um, like it it reminded me of of just this kind of really caustic cynicism of just like, or Sweet Smell of Success is another good example. Maybe the maybe the best example. Yeah, I can, like, I can get on board with that comparison. Yeah, yeah, like a like a like a just a caustic. Uh, portrait of just like greed and fame and the media and and the way that he seduces patricia neal's character is really upsetting honestly like like yeah the the way he's just like oh i'm just an old country boy the the crown is laying too heavy on my little head and it's like oh my god dude you are a fucking psycho dude like and and like he he constantly puts himself in a position to get like it, it's classic manipulation to get a certain response from her, especially when he goes to leave, because yep. it's like, dude, you know, you know how she's going to react like you had yep. no you you weren't ever going to leave like yep. you, you went through that whole exercise just so she would sleep with you, essentially. Yeah, um, it's really hard to watch, honestly, like it's 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 uh, oof, yeah, it. it and, you know, something I really love about the movie, too, is the fact that and this is something I think people get wrong about Trump, you know, because obviously I read the Criterion essay on this and it's it's all about like, um, you know, oh, like this this movie predicted Trump or whatever, which like, I mean, I it, it did like, don't get me wrong, but it's also like it just is it's like a diagnosis of a problem that we've always had. And Trump is just the next one in line. You know? I mean, yeah, because it, it, it tells us that we have a problem with latching on to powerful personalities and celebrity obsession. And Trump right. is a byproduct of that. He's not the disease. He's a symptom. Yeah. He's just the next one up. He's yeah. the next one up in line. And like the fact that he may be the stupidest one yet or the, most crass one yet like that's just a reflection of our culture right like it's not he's not some kind of special demagogue but like i also think it's such a mistake that like liberals i think have made over the past few years and i don't think conservatives are guilty of it because i think conservatives are like man trump is crazy you know whereas like there's this liberal tendency i mean and obviously it's the conservative view is trump is crazy and i love him you know yeah he's not a real politician he gets right. me. He, he this this billionaire understands me, my blue collar <laughs> job and stuff. Well, I also think they under they recognize on some level that he's a charlatan, but he's he's their charlatan, you know. Yeah. Where, whereas like liberals, they do this thing where they try to they try to like do like Freudian analysis on Trump and like he's a secret agent from Putin, and it's like could could you imagine a worse person to be a secret agent? than fucking Donald Trump or like, like who's he not going to tell is the question. Exactly. Like, 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 or, or or like one of my favorite and most insidious ones is that he's like, he's a dictator like Putin is. And it's like, dude, like this man, this man's brains could not fill like the, the pinky toe of someone like an actual demagogue, like Putin or, 
you know, the, the, the guy in the Philippines or whatever, or Indonesia, wherever the fuck that guy is who killed all the drug dealers. But, uh, you know, I, I don't know. I guess my, my point is like, not to get too far afield, but like this movie doesn't try to psychoanalyze Andy Griffith's character. We never really get close to him. He is just a bundle of narcissism, manipulation and energy. And he's only concerned with self-pleasure at all times, right? He only does this shit. It doesn't even seem like he has any nefarious motive. He cares about, he cares about pussy and money. That's all this motherfucker cares about. And it's similar to the way that it's like Scarface. (laughs) Yeah. Like it's, he's pure id. And I think like people make that mistake of like trying to get all psychoanalytic and it's like, Oh, Trump is so mysterious or whatever. And it's like, no, he's not. He's a fucking rich guy who's been spoiled all of his life and is a narcissist and needs the attention of the crowd. There's nothing to psychoanalyze there. He just likes attention. And I think that's something this movie does really well, where it's like, it doesn't try to get in the deep part and what makes Andy Griffith's character tick. It's like, no, he's just a fucking psycho. And that's not the issue. Him being a psycho is, is not the problem in this movie. The problem is... We, collectively, and we are all guilty of this, every single one of you, whether or not we're liberal, conservative, you, you, we all like to think we're not part of this crowd, but we absolutely are. We look at the psycho and we go, wow, that guy's got some good points. <laughs> well, I mean, to be fair, I find that psychos typically do have good points. <laughs> <laughs> like, constantly, it happens. Right, um, right. So, I can get on board with that. Um, <laughs> dude, I'll tell you, it's, it's, it's difficult at times to make me uncomfortable when I watch something, but that scene when she hot mics him and he just won't shut up, like the right. foot is being pushed farther and farther in the back of his throat. And it's like, dude, just stop talking. Right. And he's like, they're so stupid. And he like, he like gets behind that pillar and he's like, those idiots will do whatever I say. And it's like, dude, just this, that scene felt like it went on for like 45 minutes. I swear to God. Yeah. But uh, there's some, there's some shaggy around the edges stuff in this movie where I'm like, yo, Andy Griffith didn't need to go that hard. Like, I'm sorry, but like, I, I like, he doesn't seem to me to be like a Kazan style actor. Like, right. Like he. He does. He's not as introspective and method as someone like Dean or Brando. Like he's he's just really kind of out there. Like I don't. It, it's like uh, it's like Kazan and Andy Griffith are wrestling for control of this movie in a way, uh, and Andy Griffith wins. <laughs> like, uh, it's it's really an interesting. It's really interesting to pair that performance style to Kazan's directing. You know. Um, it's like, it's like they're antagonistic and not in a bad way that makes the movie bad, but in a way that makes the movie good, you know? Well, first off, I'll say there's, there's very few times where I'm going to say something's over the top. Uh, I'm a Nick Cage fan that says it all. Uh, <laughs> I thought he was awesome. I loved it. He chewed up everything. Like I, I, I don't even mean that in a negative way, but this yeah. dude, this dude chewed up the scenery and, um, and I'll tell you the end of it. So he, he's but at this point he's busted. He's made his climb. He's busted. She hot mic'd him. The American people heard him say all this terrible shit. And he's basically covered in sweat, intoxicated, and for some reason, 
even though it's clear he's done the guy on the on like the on the board that's working that controls the applies and the laugh he's still doing it some <laughs> for some inexplicable reason he's just <laughs> hanging out with Andy Griffith while he's just going insane and and this is when this is when Walter Matthau delivers the great speech about where he's going to end up and then he's like hey hit it and like the the sound guy hits it and it's like the perfect cue, but I'm sorry. It would have been epic. And I don't need like, like just take it all the way. This movie is already going ham. Like your lead guy is on speed. Just right. embrace this. And when they're at the bottom and he's screaming from the top, like come back, where are you going? And Walter Matthau was like, he's not the suicide. He's not the jumping type, dude. I'm sorry. <laughs> if that motherfucker had jumped, and just hit the ground next to them. That would it would have been the greatest ending of all time. I think <laughs> that would have been awesome. Honestly. Just have him just say some shit like "I can fly" because he's just so loaded, <laughs> and he just hits the ground. I'll show you, motherfuckers! And it just absolutely just his body explodes on impact. Dude, it would have been epic. But in all honesty, I love the ending. I love his performance. I loved it. This will be a movie. I cannot believe that I forgot how awesome this movie was. This will be a movie I revisit uh, just for his performance because I I greatly underestimated Matlock. I'll tell you that. <laughs> I'll say this too. It's uh, it's one of those movies where like, I mean, I, I hate I hate even saying this, but like you kind of almost have to approach it with a level of irony. Like the movie itself is is I mean, I, I don't know Kazan's thought process, but like I feel like he like he like Kazan did this and was like, this is this is an intense work of art. You know what I mean? And it is on some level. But also on another level, man, it's just kind of fun to watch Andy Griffith lose his goddamn mind over the course of, of a two-hour movie. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, I, I don't, I don't say that in like a you have to approach the movie with a kind of irony, but it is kind of fun in like a Nick Cage way to be like, yeah, 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 this movie has something deep to say about the dark soul of America, but it's like also like Andy Griffith fucking loses it. You got to see this shit, you know? Like, that's kind of how I felt watching it. Um, well, I'll tell you, it's funny you say that because I say this with no disrespect to the movie. After now that I've watched it, I'm approaching this like uh, the same way I would approach watching something like Idiocracy. Mm. Like that, that's how I'm approaching it. I'm not approaching it from the perspective of I'm about to get a lesson in something. I'm just uh, like to me, this is a this is like a an, a caricature. Uh, or it was, yeah. it was a caricature of what we feared with celebrity uh, worship and, and, and things like that, that were already like a, a problem that was starting to bud in, in the fifties the and sixties. And now the scary thing is it doesn't feel like a caricature anymore. Sure. So. Sure. And I also think there's a danger. There's a danger in these kind of movies that you're going to be, that it is a lesson. Right. That it's like, wow, this is such an important lesson on like American, you know, culture or whatever. And it's like, well, yeah, but it's also a movie. Right. Like it's it's also pretty entertaining, like in the same way that like the Joker is, you know, like it's 
it's it's also just a fun movie on some level you know it's like king of comedy i think that's something that that scorsese really understood in that movie where like yeah it's a commentary but it's also like it's also really darkly funny and really you know like it's it's also entertaining i mean that's the goal at the end of the day well i mean um, that one's a lot more relatable because i think at some point we've all wanted to kidnap our idol <laughs> so yeah and, and in our case that's uh that's uh, David Thompson. So, David, if you're listening, uh, watch out. <laughs> uh, parody, this is parody. Uh, we are not kidnapping anyone. Um, oh, man. But, uh, yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I, you know, no disrespect to this movie whatsoever, but if I'm going to watch a movie, because I, I I think we we clearly have disagreed on on how we view, how each of us view cinema, and that's fine. But on this, we agree. Like, I'm not... I'm not going to watch this for like a heartfelt lesson on anything. Like right, I'm just going right. to watch this because it's like Andy Griffith is fucking amazing. And it's like, yeah, who gives a fuck? Like Americans like stupid people. Sometimes it happens. That's life. So, yeah, I mean, it's the, it's the, it's the, it's the snake oil salesman. Like we love snake oil salesman. And I like, I'm sorry, but all of us are susceptible to it. Every single, like I, I know Every one of our like liberal or left minded listeners, like, you know, and hey, I'm including myself in this. We all think we're we're not susceptible to it, but we all absolutely are. Like we're absolutely susceptible to it in the same way. Like we love the snake oil salesman. We love, you know, being told that that better days are just around the corner, folks, and and and, and you know, it, it's 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 just it's ingrained. It's in our fucking DNA at this point. You know, and, uh, and look, I don't I don't want to step on your toes, but I'm I'm not susceptible to it. I'm sorry. Well, obviously, me neither. But <laughs> uh, but uh, but yeah, I don't know. It's just it, this movie is just a really uh, funny kind of manic histrionic example of that. Uh, and you get to see Andy Griffith lose his mind and be on a like a 1957 some kind of version of cocaine uh yeah it's uh yeah it's great it's funny uh before we wrap up uh, you said uh, snake oil salesman uh, it, it every time like at certain parts of the movie it made me think of lionel hutz from the simpsons <laughs> like it made me lionel think hutz. of like of like the cricket lawyer who just was always involved in something like and since most things get boiled down to the Simpsons, for me, I just stopped referencing them because I've referenced them so much on this podcast. It's like, to me, it was a combination of Lionel Hutz and the monorail salesman from Mars That's versus the monorail. Thinking. Like Troy McClure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, Troy McClure is the actor. Uh, the the um, Oh, shit. Yeah. The, the monorail guy was just a passing salesman. But I mean, oh, okay. yeah, that uh, that that's like, yeah, like a snake oil guy. It's like you're saying it's just like I just I for some reason I equate most things down to the Simpsons. But oh, but they but Troy McClure and the monorail salesman were both. Uh, what's his name? Weren't they? Yeah, uh, I believe they're both Phil Hartman. Phil Hartman. That you're right. Yeah, that's why. OK, yeah, that's why I was confused. And also, um, it's easy to get those. It's easy to get all those characters confused anyway. But this is why I think and I guess this is completely off topic. But this is why I'm not even you know, I've probably seen. I don't know, 30 or 40 Simpsons episodes, like the 30 or 40 most important ones. But like, I, it's, it's gotta be the peak of television because like, it's just, it's got a thing for everything, 
You know what I mean? Like it's there's a character, there's a there's a there's a situation in The Simpsons that relates to everything in modern life, and like that's you know it's uh, it's incredible to me. And they continue to predict the future, which is incredible to me. So uh, it's fucking nuts. Like they've been in the news uh, about the Ukraine thing all weekend. Like I don't want I don't want to date this episode, but yeah, they they nailed Russia invading Ukraine, and like the writers had to make a statement and be like, "Well, we got this one right, but this is not what we wanted." And it's like, really? I thought you guys were pro for like what? You don't have to <laughs> say this is not what we fucking wanted, man. We know this isn't what you wanted. <laughs> yeah, I love how get in front of the get in front of the 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 news cycle there of like wow we really we really thought the simpsons were going to get canceled because they have a pro russia anti ukraine writers room <laughs> um i hope that doesn't date the episode too bad for you guys or bring up some shitty world news but uh anyway um all in all uh dude i i i loved i loved learning more about Kazan and I love rewatching these movies, especially a face in the crowd. I, I just, I feel like, you know, it kind of just put him back on my radar and allowed me to kind of enjoy, uh, his films again. So, uh, cause love or hate him. I don't give a shit about his politics. Like I, I think that he, he's a, he is a great director. He, he's not, he doesn't have a style we can nail down. We've been doing a lot of French directors lately, so we, he doesn't have a style that we could attribute, like a Truffaut or a Godard or a, a, a Bresson, but um, he has his own way of doing things and his own way of making films and, and working with these actors and getting undeniably amazing performances. So. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I, I, I think... Um it's similar to the way that we've been talking about with our French new wave episodes, you know, when we, we Truffaut recently and, and, uh, you know, similar to the way that we've been, been kind of talking about that and poetic realism and these just various movements in cinema history, you know, Kazan really was, you know, like I mentioned before, the, he was the, the arrowhead to all of this fascinating, uh, theatrical, uh, and you know television stuff that was going on in New York, and he was, you know, kind of responsible for bringing that to Hollywood, bringing that to these massive budgets and to these big movies that were, well, you know, to cinema as opposed to just being kind of New York theater stuff that most people didn't have access to, or very very early you know television plays that most people didn't have access to, and he was responsible for bringing that to you know, the, the widescreen and the, the, the big, the, the largeness of the cinema. And that is, that is something that, um, in my mind is almost even more important than any of his individual movies, you know, is he was, um, responsible for bringing that sensibility. Of course, method acting is, is the, the, maybe the primary element, but he was responsible for bringing that sensibility, uh, to Hollywood and to cinema and thus to, mainstream american life and that is uh that's something that's really important you know and influential obviously as we've as we talked about throughout this episode and the people that are willing to defend him no matter what his what his uh his politics were so um yeah obviously a great man and a great artist or and i should say maybe just a great artist <laughs> yeah mediocre man 
Great artist. Um, yeah. <laughs> but guys, go watch Streetcar Named Desire, Man on a Tightrope, East of Eden, Wild River. I mean, Panic in the Streets, if you can find it. I mean, America, America's great as well. I know that one's available. Uh, go watch some of his other films because uh, you you will definitely get something uh, from from what many people believe, uh, including myself, that he he's one of the great American directors. So uh, yeah, agreed. So go check it out. But um, aside from that, this has been a super sized episode. Uh, so that that's it. I, don't, I can't see the timer in front of me. A way to break the facade to the listeners. Oh, um, sorry. Uh, yeah, I mean I can see the timer, and I know now it's too late. Uh, guys, uh, you know, follow us on Twitter at Silver Video. Uh, we post, I should say, Jacob posts random stuff. Uh, some of it you want to see, most of it you just follow us. Let, okay, um, let's not get, let's not, <laughs> let's not litigate our fucking Twitter feed on the podcast. Talk about yeah. breaking the fourth wall. Yeah, go, go follow the Twitter that Jacob controls. Uh, and, and follow us on podcast, follow us on Instagram, Silver Screen Video Podcast. Yeah, follow uh, us on podcast. Uh, <laughs> hey, actually, follow us uh, wherever you get your podcast. Make sure you're subscribed so you get that instant download when our episodes drop Wednesday. And uh, rate and review wherever you are. iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher. There's like a billion podcast apps now. So just uh, rate and review wherever you can so we can feast on the algorithm that runs all of our lives. So we can spread the, the silver screen video gospel across the world. Yeah, so we can spread the silver screen video seed. Um, so <laughs> basically, we're trying to be like Andy Griffith in a face in the crowd. Turn us into, you know, uh, we want to become just just demagogues. You know, well, the problem is people always say absolute power corrupts absolutely. What if you're corrupted absolutely before you have absolute power? No, no, no. I think this is a situation where it's like. Tobias on Arrested Development talking with his wife about open marriages where, like, people say that it never works for them. Like, people say absolute <laughs> power corrupts absolutely, but what if it doesn't for us, you know? So maybe it won't. Just give us absolute power and we'll find out. It's true. Guys, that's your quest to give us absolute power. <laughs> so <laughs> That's our anyway. takeaway from a face in the crowd yeah our takeaway is i want to be the guy at the end covered in sweat screaming at people who aren't there um so anyway guys we hope you enjoyed this thanks for listening and uh we'll see you next week at the silver screen video